Good morning to all of you. Uh, we're glad to have you all here on this holiday weekend. Thank you for our guests and visitors for uh, making it out on this holiday weekend and, and spending time with us to worship with us. Uh, and also thank you, Vincent and worship team, for leading us in those songs of worship um, and even just preparing us so well for what we're going to hear from God's word this morning. Uh, man, and can it be that our God should choose to die for us? That love that is so amazing, so divine, demands our, our soul and our all. That is so powerful. That's so helpful. Um, turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles back to John 15. We're going to uh, be in verse 12 to 17, verses 12 to 17 this morning. Jesus is still talking here, and he says this to his disciples. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for your word and for how it is so powerful. How it tells us more of who you are and what you've done. And how it helps us see how we are to respond to your truths. We're so grateful for the fact that... Because of Christ, you change the facts on the ground. We are no longer your enemies, but for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are your friends. We are adopted into your family. We are now one with you. Thank you for this reality, and we pray that as we study your word, you would help us to see how this new reality ought to change the way that we live our lives as a church. May you be honored. May you be glorified as we, as, a, as individuals and as a church, strive to be the people that you want us to be. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, first of all, I want to thank you uh, all for so much for your, for your love and concern for me after hearing that uh, I, I went in for surgery after retreat. Uh, Stacy and I appreciate all of the offers of help, food, and, and prayers, and, and it was really just uh, incredibly humbling and encouraging to see these small tokens, these demonstrations of your love, and uh, we are so grateful for you all. So thank you so much for your kindness to us in that way. Uh, I also am pleased to inform you, uh, I'm really excited to inform you that today marks the beginning of a series that we'll, we'll be going through as I preach um, that will cover the one another's in Scripture. Um, our goal in this study is to examine what the Bible teaches regarding how God designed the interaction within the church, within the body of Christ, to be a testimony to the world of the power of the gospel. And, you know, the reason why I am so personally excited for this series is because this study challenges us all to grow more in our overall godliness as we compare our lives towards the biblical standard and expectation for our lives as a result of our faith in Christ. And honestly, 
when it comes to our own walks and, and how you know, we live our lives before God, we all have work to do. Right? When we compare our lives in comparison to what Christ wants us to be, none of us should think, you know what, I've arrived already. I don't need to apply any of these scriptural truths anymore. I'm, I'm a Christian, and I'm good. Right? I think the more that we look at this study, um, yeah, the more we realize how much further we have to go. And that's why I'm encouraged by this. Uh, so even if you don't appreciate it, even if you don't like it, I'm, I'm so looking forward to seeing how uh, God is going to be challenging and convicting myself just in terms of like how much more I need to grow. So I hope that you would uh, also join me in that. Um, you know, we oftentimes acknowledge that, you know, we are, um, that we're, we're growing in our, in our Christ-likeness and and whatnot, and we're in pro- and we're in process. But sometimes we say, "I'm growing in Christ likeness. I'm in process." But you say that just to get people off your backs, off your back, so that they stop bothering you and saying, "Like, hey, how's your spiritual walk going?" It's like, "No, I'm in process. Just leave me alone. Like, I'm fine." Right? But when we say we're in process, are we actually just making minimal, gro- you know, accomplishing minimal growth at all? Are we accomplishing minimal growth at all? Or are we just saying, hey, just leave me alone. I'm fine. Right? When we want to grow in Christ's likeness, we want to grow in, in our totality, uh, of our, in, in totality of our Christ's likeness. And that's why we all have so much more to go. Our church's primary focus right now, and it should always be our focus, is discipleship. Right? Jesus defines that in Matthew 28, 20, as teaching people from all nations all that he commanded. So put in another way, discipleship is the means by which we transmit Christ's words to others so that they too can obey it. And that can happen in multiple ways, right? You know, when you look at that, when you look at his description of what discipleship is, it doesn't say that it has to happen in a particular form, right? So that means that making disciples of Jesus Christ can happen through the public proclamation of the word, through preaching or teaching, but it can also happen in the private ministry of the word through small groups, one-on-one meetups, or even in the more extreme cases, biblical counseling. But the most important thing that we have to consider when it comes to discipleship is the fact that we are teaching others what Christ has commanded. That is the display, the demonstration of our love for one another. So if we say that we're Christians and that we love God's church, And we love the people within God's church. One of the most loving things that we can do, one of the most caring things that we can do is to be committed to growing more like Christ ourselves and growing more in our knowledge of the scriptures ourselves so that when people come up to us and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. I have a problem. Can you help me? We don't get all nervous and be like, oh, well, um, I'll pray for you. And uh, by the way, here's the pastor's number. Right. I mean, in a sense, that is what we're here for, too. But we should want to know the scriptures and to know Christ so well that you can say, I might not be able to sympathize with you completely. I don't understand exactly everything that you're going through, but I do know what God's word has to say, and I can help you with this. Right? That's one of the most loving things that we can do. Yes, we as a church, we want to be involved with church programs. We want to make Christ's name known in our community. But all of that is dependent 
upon and founded upon active participation from every church member in discipleship, caring for one another according to God's way and teaching one another God's word accurately. And so if we are faithful to do that, to teach God's word faithfully and to work faithfully to apply his truth to our lives, then we will do what Paul says he wants us to do in Colossians 1, 28, to present every man mature in Christ. And so that's what the goal of the study, the one another study is going to be, is that we learn how to specifically apply the love of others in our lives as a reflection of our love for God so that we can grow in Christ's likeness and we can be help to those around us. As you can see from the title of this morning's sermon, we're going to begin um, this series with the foundation block of love. You all know that we are called to love one another, but Christians can run into trouble when they focus so much on love that they downplay the importance of the rest of Jesus' commands. On the other side... Christians can also run into trouble when they focus too little on love, resulting in a lack of care for the entire church body. And despite these potential issues with love on both extremes, the importance of Christians loving one another remains. After all, Jesus himself confirms the importance of loving one another when he ties loving one another into the greatest commandment to love Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and mind. And so that's the case. If Jesus ties the love for others to the command for us to have an all-encompassing love for God, then we also ought to view the love of others as important. And we're going to examine that this morning through three reasons. Christians ought to have a greater love for one another as a result of our faith in Jesus. Three reasons Christians ought to have a greater love for one another as a result of our faith in Jesus. The first reason why we ought to have a greater love for one another is because our one another love reflects Christ's love for us. Our one another love reflects Christ's love for us. The verses that we read before the sermon are a small part of a larger section in the book of John known as the Upper Room Discourse. And for those of you who do not know what the Upper Room Discourse uh, is, the Upper Room Discourse is a name that has been applied to chapters 13 through 17 in John. It's, uh, it's the last formal time of teaching that Jesus has with his disciples before his crucifixion. And so since it is the last formal time of teaching, these function as last words for the disciples, right? These are last words that are meant to act as the foundation for how uh, those who follow Christ conduct themselves in the world until Jesus returns. Last words are intended to be acted upon. So let's take a look at what Jesus commands us to do. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. From the outset, we see that Jesus is explaining what his commandment to his disciples is. In John 14, 21, Jesus tells his disciples that they are truly his disciples if they keep his commandments, plural. But now, Jesus tells them that his commandment, singular, 
is that we love one another just as he has loved us. So why does Jesus reduce all the commandments that he has given his disciples to the singular commandment to love one another? We've already touched on it a little bit, but the answer goes back to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, where we see the original command for the people of Israel to love the Lord their God with all their hearts, minds, and souls, as well as the Ten Commandments. The way that the Ten Commandments is split up is that the first section of the Ten Commandments focuses on a person's love for God. The second half of the Ten Commandments focuses on how that love for God ought to translate to our love for other people. So essentially, you can think of it this way. If we learn to love God as he intends for us to love him, then we will naturally love other people. It will naturally do that. It will flow out. And it's for that reason that Jesus and the religious lawyers have said previously that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love others as yourself. Right? That word and, it ties them together. In a sense, it's almost like this is greatest commandment 1A and this is greatest commandment 1B. They're together. So this love that we are to have for others, it's a particular type of love. It's not a vague concept of love that is defined however we want. Right? The definition and demonstration of love doesn't change based off uh, what side of the bed you got up in the morning. It's not dependent upon whether you've had anything to eat yet or any other excuse that we might uh, come up with when we fail to love others. Look at the, verse, look at the end of verse 12. Right? The love that we are to have for one another is just as I, that is Jesus, have loved you. It's supposed to look like that. Right? It should be similar to Christ's love for us in all respects. And some of you probably just let that just go over your head, and you're just like, yeah, sure, right? Love as Jesus loved us, fine. That is an, inc an incredibly high standard of love, right? We, we run past it because you're just like, yeah, sure, I understand that. Love as Jesus loved us, right? But do you know what that means? Do you know what that looks like, right? Christ loved us while we were still unrepentant, while we hated him, while we wanted nothing to do with him. He loved us even then. For those of us who have believed in him and have repented of our sins, his love for us doesn't fade one iota, even though we continue to sin against him. Think about that. Right? Doesn't your love for your family and friends start to fade for them? when they continue to irritate you or annoy you, right? You, you'll probably say, you know, I still love you. I still love you. But it's really hard for me to love you right now, right? Especially when, you know, kids disobey or when parents annoy you. It's just like, well, I, I love you, but I don't want to be around you right now, right? When we sin against Christ continually in his presence, it's not, oh, I love you, but I don't really like you so much anymore. I'm starting to lose that feeling of love towards you. No. His love for us remains constant. His love for us remains constant. It doesn't fade. So how does that kind of love that God has for us through Christ 
compare to the love that you show to your friends and family? How does that love, how does God's love that he shows to you compare to the love that you show your brothers and sisters here in this church? It's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? I don't think any one of us can lift our head high and say, yeah, my love is exactly like Christ's love for me. You can't. You can't say it. It's embarrassing. Because the more that you compare your life to Jesus' life, the more you realize that the distance between us is vast. He is close to us, but he's also so, so far away from us. So for any of us who think that we've reached that standard, that we don't have to grow in this area of love, you are sorely mistaken. There is so much more that we need to learn, to do, to practice in our love for one another. And that's why when we think about those words, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Oh, you cannot sing those songs without feeling anything. Because if you understand how much God loves you, how much Christ has loved you, and how you're supposed to show that love to others, you should be on your knees saying, woe is me, I don't love like I ought to. Yes, there is grace. Yes, Christ understands that we won't be perfectly sinless until we go home. But it doesn't mean that we have an excuse to be complacent about our sin or to even remain in it. Romans 6, 1 to 3 reminds us that we are not and cannot continue to be dominated by the sins which defined us from before we were saved. All that is gone. Why? Because we've been baptized into Christ. We are united with him so that when he died to sin, we also died to sin. His hold on us is gone. When he rose from the dead, we are made spiritually alive. And eventually our physical life will reflect that, spirit, that, that uh, eternal life as well. Yes, we may fail to love like Christ loved us at times. But we can, because of this reality of being one with Christ, we can certainly strive to be more consistent in the demonstration of our love for others as Christ loved us. Verse 13, it continues to describe Christ's particular love for us by showing that extent of love for us. It says this, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Since Jesus is with his disciples, he reminds them that the ultimate expression of love amongst friends is that one would be willing to die for their friends. When Jesus told his disciples that they would not be able to follow him where he was going in John 13, Peter famously told Jesus that he would lay his life down for him. And, and what he does in this moment, he's demonstrating his loyalty and his friendship to Jesus. He's saying, hey, they might not do it, but I'm going to do it. I want to follow you. I can follow you. I will die for you. And Peter will eventually die for, for the sake of Christ down the road. But in this particular moment, you know the story, he does fail, right? He falters. He stumbles and he denies Christ three times after. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. As Jesus 
is telling his disciples that the greatest form of love is that one would be willing to die for his friends. He's reminding them, hey, you remember what Peter just said to me just a little earlier on in our dinner? He's right. That is the greatest form of love, that one would be willing to die for his friends. And unbeknownst to the disciples at this time, Jesus himself is ultimately going to do that. He himself is going to die for his friends. This is not necessarily Jesus wanting to flex on Peter and one-up him. But in a sense, it is. right? Because we might say that we love Jesus. But our love for him, compared to his love for us, will always pale in comparison. It's not good enough, it's not strong enough, it's not complete enough. And that sounds depressing. But if we are to love each other as Christ loved us, and we're supposed to do it on our own power, oh boy, we are in big trouble, aren't we? Because it's not a love that we can produce consistently on our own. And that's pretty much the point. On our own, we cannot do this. We need the Holy Spirit's help. We need more of Christ. As the more that we see him, the, the clearer our, our view of him is, the more we ought to strive to want to be more like him, to move everything in our lives that are not consistent with a Christ-like like life out of the way so that we can be more and more like Jesus. Right? That's what our goal is. That's what we strive to do, and we need his help to do it. Without God's help, you and I cannot accomplish this command to love one another as Christ loved us. This command, it's incredibly simple, isn't it? Right? Love one another as I loved you. But it's incredibly difficult to do. And so, brothers and sisters, be careful. Be careful of having the attitude that you've arrived when it comes to loving God and loving his people. Be careful. And also, be careful as you hear this sermon of thinking about other people. Yeah, brother, whatever your name is. Yeah, sister, whatever your name is. This message is for you. I don't got to apply it because you're unloving to me. No, it applies to you specifically, right? You can't control how other people apply the text. Yes, you can't control that. You can't control how you, you apply the text. You can't control how you honor God in your obedience to him. So you do that. And you let God work with them. But be careful of saying, this is for you, this is for you. You better be listening. Right? You listen. You apply. And I'm not saying this in a strong review. I just want to guard us from thinking, it's not for me, it's for, it's for you guys. Right? No, no, it's for all of us. I'm telling you, like, when I look at my own life, I am so, so convicted about how how sinful I am how much more like Jesus I need to be and how I failed to be that. We need more of him. We need to strive to get there and we can't think that we've arrived. Can't. We can't think that. Because if we struggle in this area of loving God's people, yet say that we love God, shouldn't we have reason to pause and examine whether we actually understand what it means to love God? Right, Because a love for God, as we know, should naturally lead to the love of other people. And yet, we still struggle here. And we will struggle. Right? We will struggle. And that's okay. But 
you have, if love is completely absent, if you don't care anything about the body, anything about anyone else here in this church, that doesn't reflect Jesus' love for us. I read somewhere recently that if we don't have a few friends within church that we can walk with who can encourage us and we can encourage, who can confront us in love when we're kind of going off the rails with our sin and vice versa and comfort them, perhaps something is out of whack when it comes to our love for God because our lack of love within the body demonstrates that we don't really understand what it means to love God. So if we don't have those friends that we can rely on, we can do these things with, that we can practice the one another's with, perhaps it's not a church problem. Perhaps it's a you problem. Do you love God enough where you are willing to die to self to go love on other people, regardless of whether they love on you? We are all to love others as Christ has loved us. If we all strive to practice this, then there will be no one left in the cracks. There won't be anyone who falls behind, who will be forgotten. Because we're all striving to practice this towards one another. And that leads us to our second reason why we ought to have a greater love for one another, which is that our one another love demonstrates our relationship to Christ. Our one another love demonstrates our relationship to Christ. How do we know if we are included among Jesus' friends? We might believe that, we, that he loves us, and we would say that we love him. But how can we be sure that the love that he has for us is truly ours? Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus' friends are those who do what he commands them. Those who truly have a relationship with Christ will do what he commands because they recognize him as God. They love him, therefore they want to obey him. Now, there are some who will say that obedience to God, while it is good, is not necessary as a part, as an essential part of a Christian's life. Because the most important thing that we need to do is pray the prayer and accept Jesus into your heart. If you do those things, you're saved by grace, and if you don't demonstrate any fruits of repentance, if you look exactly like the world, but as long as you said the prayer, you're fine. You're good. Once prayed, always saved. That sounds good. It sounds real good. Right? But that's not what Jesus says here. That is not what Jesus says here. He says that we are his friends if we obey him. We are his if we obey him. In 2 Thessalonians 1.8, Paul comforts suffering believers by reminding them that their perseverance, despite the physical persecution that they were experiencing, was the plain indication of God's righteous judgment, which he will rightly repay 
to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In 1 Peter 1, 1 1-2, Peter identifies scattered believers as those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. Going back to John 15, Jesus makes it clear that obedience is necessary in the lives of those who are one with him. If he is the vine, we are the branches. We are to keep his commandments. In verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So abide in my love, just as Jesus did by keeping his Father's commandments, right? Our life parallels Jesus' life in that we must also be one with him as he is one with God the Father. And he did so as he obeyed God the Father. If anyone didn't need to obey, in a sense, it would be Jesus because he always obeyed. Right, but he obeyed God the Father. Hebrews tells us that, right, that he learned obedience as he followed after God. Obedience is a vital part of a Christian's life. We must obey God because we're one with Christ. Why do you think the church is called the body of Christ? It's not a nice metaphor. It's a reality. We're a part of Christ. We're one with Christ. A part of us is a part of, is a part of him. Right? Why do you think Paul repeats over and over and over again in Ephesians 1 through 3 the significance of who we are and what we receive in Christ? Right, take a look at that this afternoon. Look at how many times it says in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. The point is this. We are one with Christ. Christ. You cannot be separated from Christ. You are unified in him. You are one with him. And that is also why when we talk about baptism, and we're going to have baptism next week, right? why are we baptized? Why, why does Paul describe it as being baptized into Jesus Christ? You are dying to self. You are, going, you are being unified with Christ, raised with him. Right? That's the solidarity that's there. That's why we, that's why we baptize through immersion. Because you want to symbolize that death and resurrection. Being in Christ means something. Right? It means we're unified in him, united in him. We're truly one with him. Just as he is one with the Father. That's why obedience is so necessary. When you're disobeying, you're acting contrary to what it means to be in Christ. Therefore, if we've truly been saved, if we truly are Jesus' friends, we will obey him because we are one with him. Obedience is not the thing that saves you. Okay? Obedience is not the thing that saves you. God's grace, which allows us to believe and have faith to receive saving grace, that is what saves us. But obedience is the natural result the proof of purchase of the salvation that we've been given. Those who obey prove that they've been saved and are friends of Jesus. When Jesus identifies his disciples as friends 
in verse 14. This is a significant status change. Before, they were just slaves of Christ, those who served Christ, those who did his will. But now they're more than that. Or they're friends. And even though they, some of them will identify themselves as bond slaves and bond servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're friends too. Right? And that, that status change is significant because it comes in the last words of Jesus. As he was doing ministry with the disciples before the upper room discourse, they were just following him, doing his will, whatever he asked, and as they were receiving instruction from him. They didn't know necessarily the reasons behind God's plan at the moment. Right? Why was God doing this? They didn't know. They just did what God wanted them to do. Now, because the time is coming, because Jesus is going to the cross, he's letting them know what's, what's coming, coming next. He's giving them insight into how his life and future death will fulfill God's promises in the Old Testament. They have insight now where there was once just waiting for further revelation about God's plans. He's built them up on the fundamentals. And now that they know the purpose of the fundamentals, they can go forward with that new information in accomplishing God's purposes. And think about it in terms of sports. When you pick up a sport, oftentimes we start you with the fundamentals. Right? Think about it like, you know, this, it's basketball season, right? You watch the Warriors and you're just like, wow, that's beautiful basketball. I want to, well, okay, maybe not right now, but you know what I mean, right? It's, it's just like, whoa, I want to play like a pro. And, I don't, and if you didn't have any kind of skill foundation and you're trying to learn the game, we don't start you shooting threes. Right? We don't start you with all the advanced things. We, you know, we don't say like, oh, you want to dunk? Sure, let's dunk. Right? No, we start you with the fundamentals. We teach you footwork. We teach you dribbling. You're just like, this is so boring. Why would I do that? Right? Why do I have to dribble just as good with my left hand as I have to do with my right hand? I'm right-handed. I'm just going to dominate everybody with my right hand. Right? No, we teach you the fundamentals, though. With the greater scheme in mind, right? There's a further plan. There's a fr there's there's more to come. There's a bigger picture behind the fundamentals, right? Because when we have once you master the fundamentals and you get into the game, then you understand how it all works. Jesus' time with his disciples that was that foundation building time. That was the fundamental building time. He was teaching them more about God, more about himself, more about everything that they have encountered. And how that fulfills what God has promised in the Old Testament. And now the time has come for Jesus to go to the cross. So he pulls the curtain back and he says, this is what that was all for. And as we'll see, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the disciples still didn't fully get it. They still didn't fully understand what Jesus was doing before. But after he rose and he instructed them again, he reminded them again of what he was doing. They're like, oh, that makes sense. Right, and then they went out, and they couldn't be stopped. Since they're Jesus' friends, no longer merely his slaves, they were allowed to see more of what God was doing. That informed the foundation that they had built so that they could go do his will later. And so, because we are numbered among Jesus' friends too, we also know what God's ultimate plan for the future entails. We might not know the specific nuances, of how God will allow for the rest of human history to unfold, but we do know that he wins in the end, and that he will 
bring us home. He will judge all unrighteousness. And we know that he's going to do what he says he's going to do because he's been faithful to do it thus far. So we can trust in him, but we also have to remember because we know who he is, because we're his friends, right? When we are commanded to love one another, this is not merely a suggestion from Jesus to help keep our life drama-free. He didn't tell us just to love one another so we won't always be at each other's throats. He commanded us to love one another because it would be through our love for one another that we would show how powerful Christ's love for the world is. When people see how far Christians will go in their love for one another, it is a testimony to them of the great difference between a genuine Christian love for others and a natural humanistic love for others. Think back with me to Acts 4. What was the distinguishing mark of the church during that time? It was their love for one another. Right? The early church took care of one another so that all who had needs within the church were cared for as their fellow believers gave to meet their needs. The world took notice that this was the kind of love that marked Christians. And this is not something that you would do if you're just nice. You could do some of this if you were just nice. But the love that Christians display towards one another demonstrates, in part, the great love that God has for us. Right? Some people look at this and they say, this is the Christian backing for socialism. And this is how we justify socialism. This is not how we justify socialism. What was happening as Christians were loving one another is that they understood a theological reality that because they believed in Jesus Christ, because they were one with him, our brothers and sisters, they're us. Right? They're one with us too. And so because they are one with us too, when I give to care for the needs of my brother or my sister, I am caring for the body of Jesus Christ. It goes above and beyond just mere niceness, right? But it's because you're one with me, I will take care of you as I would care for myself. Because I'm dying to myself so that I can care for you. It's greater than that. It's greater than that. Our greatest spiritual need is our salvation from the wrath of God, which we earn through our sins. So God gave his only son to die on the cross for us. Jesus, because of his great love for God the Father and for us, laid down his life so that through his death and resurrection, he could pay our ransom and open the door to spiritual life. When we give, when we care for one another, when we get behind God's program, and when we're loving each other like no one else loves one another, we demonstrate how powerful this new relationship is to break down the bonds between people, to unify us in Christ so that we actually care for one another. Right? Some of you, like, you wouldn't necessarily care for the needs of other people here in the church like you would for your own family, right? Your family comes first, naturally speaking. So you would give for your family to care for them 
that you might not be as generous with other people who are not family. But when we understand that we are one in Christ, that we are one people, one body, and we give like the early church in Acts 4, we demonstrate, no, 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 you are my family. You are one with me, and because of that, I give. So we demonstrate, we reflect that same love that Christ has uh, for us in that love for one another. Our love for one another, it's not a work that earns our salvation or more favor from God, but it demonstrates our relationship to Christ. It is proof of our relationship with Christ. If those who obey Jesus and are his friends uh, um, obey this command to love one another as Christ has loved us, we demonstrate that we understand what genuine faith in Christ looks like, that it's obedience to him and that it naturally leads to love for one another people, uh, for, uh, for one another. Right, but how, how does this demonstration of love for one another relate to the rest of our Christian life? Well, the answer to that question leads us to the third reason why we ought to have a great greater love for one another, which is that our one another love accomplishes God's purposes. Our one another love accomplishes God's purposes. Verse 16 and 17. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Unlike most of the disciples of rabbis back in Jesus' day, Jesus' disciples did not choose to follow Jesus on their own. They weren't like, oh, hey, I like what you're teaching. I'm going to go follow after you. Right? That's kind of what we're used to. Right? Uh, if, you, if your high school allows you to do it, you go to ratemyteacher.com and you see which teacher you want to go to. Right? And for those of us who, are, uh, who went to college in the internet age, our favorite tool was ratemyprofessor.com because you wanted to choose which professor that you got to study under. Right? And when I was in college, I did the same thing. And I routinely chose a particular Bible professor because he was my favorite Bible teacher. He helped me understand the scriptures in, a, in its broad context. He helped me understand theology better. He helped me understand how the scriptures work together to show the glory of God. So I love this guy. I was in almost every one of his classes that he offered. I chose him. He had no choice whether he could take me, because right? he couldn't kick me off and say, like, well, I don't want to see you no more, so go away. Right? So I got to choose him. I got to be with him. But Jesus' choice of his disciples is different. Right? We don't have a say. He chooses who his disciples are, and he does so with a purpose. Right? He does so with a purpose. It's not because they had any particular sets of skills or godliness that made them stand out among the rest. He chose them, it says, because uh, he wanted to appoint them so that they would go and bear fruit and that that fruit would remain. What does it mean to bear fruit? What does it mean to bear fruit? Well, if you're like me and you were just reading this without the context of uh, John 15, 1 to 11, the first thing that you're probably thinking is, oh, bear fruit. Probably fruit of the Spirit, uh, probably good works. These are the things that uh, we would naturally produce um, in, in our lives. Right? That's probably the, your first reaction. But when you look at it in context, that's where you have to actually slow down and think, is this fruit actually good works and... and um, is it actually good works 
and the fruit of the Spirit, or is it, in fact, something else? Is it perhaps evangelism? Right? Because if the fruit here, if the fruit described here was the fruit of the Spirit, then greater godliness would be the desired result. Right? And that sounds real good. Right? If I'm going to be one with Christ in the vine, and I'm a branch, and I'm producing fruit, yeah, I want to grow godliness. Grow in godliness. But when you think about what Jesus has just said in context, spiritual fruit and good works don't really seem to fit the explanation of why Jesus chose and appointed the disciples. Because if greater godliness was the goal, why would he send them out? Why does he need to send them out to go proclaim the, the gospel? Right? Because you, you know as well as I do that more often than not, it's easier for us to avoid sinning when we're not around people. Yeah? Right? Because if you're driving by yourself in an empty parking lot, there's no, you know, there's no way that you get mad at other people because you're by yourself. Right? But if you're on 19th Avenue or you're on Sunset Avenue and someone cuts you off, you're like, yeah. right? Why? Because other people brought out what was in your heart. So if greater godliness was the goal, why don't we all just be like Luther and uh, at least pre-save, pre-salvation Luther and just go to a monastery, lock ourselves in a cell and just do all these things to try and produce greater godliness in ourselves. And even if that was the case, would that fruit endure? Would it remain? No. Because when you die, you die. Right? Nothing really, I mean, of course, you know, you're up in heaven with God, but that fruit doesn't have any impact on anyone else if you're just by yourself, right? It wouldn't result in, also, if you think about it this way, if you pursue greater godliness in your own life, does it, does it naturally result in you getting whatever you ask for if you do it in God's name? Right? That's what he says here, Right? That whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So if you grow in greater godliness, if you read your Bible seven days a week and you pray for 30 minutes a day and you go to church, you don't miss church when it's open, um, I suppose if you want to interpret it wrongly, you could say, well, I do all these things for you, Jesus, so uh, I really need extra money to pay for my bills this this month, I would really like a better car. I wish that my boss would stop treating me so poorly. In Jesus' name, amen. Is he going to answer that prayer? More often than not, no. So that's not what this means. Right? We have to be careful of mixing metaphors here and assuming that we know what Jesus is talking about without taking things into proper context. What we're talking about here that makes way more sense especially when we talk about the enduring or remaining quality of fruit, is that the fruit that we're trying to produce is the fruit of the gospel, evangelism, when people believe in Christ, and they, too, are brought into the vine. Right? When they receive eternal life, they will endure. And when you think of the result, that whatever we ask for, in, uh, ask of the Father in Jesus' name, that he may give to us, right? if you ask from selfish motives, you're not going to get it. But if your goal is for God to be glorified, for God to be known, for people to be saved, or to at least hear the truth of the gospel, will he answer that prayer, whatever you ask? Yeah, he will, because that's his will. It's his will. And, you know, we, we know that not everyone that we pray for will repent of their sins and believe in Christ. We know that. We know that. We can't give up because 
2 Peter 3.9 reminds us that God is patient, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to be saved. Because of God's patience, he allows for it. And, you know, think about this. If you have grandparents who aren't saved or parents who aren't saved, right, God allows for them to live 70, 80, 90, maybe even 100 years, and he doesn't strike them down where they are because he is allowing for them to have ample opportunity to repent of their sins. That is God's grace and kindness to them. Right? And so we know that when we don't give up, when we keep praying, when we keep sharing the gospel with them, right, God is going to accomplish his purpose in their lives. Isaiah 55 reminds us that God's word goes forth and it always accomplishes its purpose. It never returns to him empty. So you keep trying. You keep representing Christ in all that you do. And perhaps if it's his will, they will be saved. And I know that it might seem kind of abstract and complicated to think about how loving one another here within this church body will result in a greater witness to the people outside of us. Because it seems like we have a lot of steps to take before our love inside the church reaches the outside community. And, you know, I agree. It does seem complicated. It is, it is hard. It would be far easier for us to use the money that we have and the blueprints from other uh, churches' ministry programs to accomplish our purposes, right? And especially if we're just throwing money at people, it's easier. And you don't have to evangelize yourself, right? Just throw money at it. Let someone else do the work for you. It's way easier if we do it that way. But I'm not saying that those things are unhelpful. They are helpful, but... If you want to evangelize, if you want to reach others, we have to make sure we have to make sure that we get the heart of how Jesus wants us, his church, to, uh, how he wants us to represent him. We have to get that correct first. If we don't get that correct first, then anything that we do outside in terms of trying to evangelize others, it's not going to work. Ministry must be done according to the principles that God has outlined for us in his word first. And I know that's a big task, but everything that we do, it ought to be derived either directly from the text of scripture or from principles found in scripture. And if we do these things simply because we've always done that or because, hey, other churches do it and they're successful, right? We need to back up and we need to reevaluate why we want to do these things. Jesus, at the core of of the ministry that we have within the church says that we are to love one another so that through our radical love for one another, people can see that Christians are not just nice. Right? Anyone can be nice, but that they're loving. He wants, us to, he wants other people to see that we're loving. We should not merely strive to be known as a friendly church, a welcoming church, or even a Bible-loving church. You know that that's kind of our reputation. Right? But above all those things, above all those things, we should want to be known as a loving church. We want to be a loving church because we love Christ and we love his people. And so because of that, we want to care for one another, have consideration for one another. And again, remember, this is applying to us. Right? Think about how this applies to you, not how so-and-so is applying this sermon. We want each and every one of us to be loving, to be characterized by that so that all of us together are a loving church, moving each other towards Christ-likeness. The Apostle Paul, he explains how a knowledge of God demonstrates the power of God in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17. 
writing this. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. When we love one another, as God calls us to love one another in his word, other people from outside of us who are saved and unsaved alike will be able to tell that we know God, that we love God because we will act differently than others, even other people who call themselves Christians. You want to have the love of Christ be the fragrance that comes off you. Right? You know, like when you have good food in the car and, you're, and you unload your car and you come back into your car like maybe hours later and it still smells like pizza or it still smells like Chinese food and you're just like, man, that's, that's a pretty strong aroma. Right? That's kind of what you want to have. It, the, the aroma of Christ's love should reek off you. I know that sounds kind of gross, but like it should just come off you. Right? That other people will be like, whoa, like because you're so different, I understand that you know God. The, that your understanding of God is actually motivating the way that you act, the way that you do things, the way that you process things. Right? So let us be the aroma of Christ to those we interact with in our lives so that Christ may be glorified and so that we can do his will more effectively during our short time here. This morning we examined three reasons Christians ought to have a greater love for one another as a result of our faith in Jesus. We are commanded by Jesus to reflect his love for us in our love for one another. And that love that we display towards one another is evidence of our genuine relationship with Christ. And God will use that to accomplish his purposes as we preach the gospel to others so that they can hear it believe in Jesus, repent of their sins, and grow in Christ-likeness, and that they too would proclaim the good news of the gospel. We ought to strive for that. If you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Christ, we ask you to consider just how much he loves you. That he was willing to die on the cross for you, despite your sin, so that you could be freed from it so you could be freed to live for him. And he loves you so much that he was willing to sacrifice himself for you. That's a great display of love. So we would ask you to consider that and to believe upon him, to not think that you're okay because you're just a nice person or a good person, but to recognize that no, Compared to Jesus, you are woefully short, and that's okay, because he'll make it up, and that's the good news of the gospel, if you believe in him and repent of your sins. For those of us here who are believers in Jesus Christ, this morning's sermon, it's merely a foundation block. It's just this, the opening conversation starter. Uh, we'll, we'll look at more specifics in terms of how to apply loving one another uh, in the future. Um, but if I can provide some guardrails for you as you think about how you can apply this message and begin to love one another as God wants us to love one another, let me leave you with a few questions. 
do I know and love God as I should love him? Does my love for God lead me to love others as Christ has loved me? And what is one way our interactions with others can be more consistent with how Jesus wants us to act? Those are some of the guardrails that helps us apply rightly a one another kind of love. There's more that we're going to explore in terms of how we can grow in our love for one another, but uh, let me also leave you with an exhortation as well. As we strive to grow in our love for one another, older saints, all of you here who have people younger than you, so it doesn't matter whether you're in gig or whether you're uh, in joiners or whatnot, older saints, don't despise the younger saints. Don't ignore them. Don't think that they're too mature, that you can't get to know them, that it's too hard to get to know them, and that they instead have to come to get to know you. Don't despise them. If we act immaturely, it's because we are immature, and we need you to help us grow in Christ-likeness. So don't despise the younger ones, but strive to understand them. Don't just talk over them and tell them, this is who you are without getting to know them. Right? Get to know them. Love them. Exhort them gently. And when appropriate, firmly. Younger saints, any of you who can look up at other people here in the church and you know that there are people who are older than you, don't despise or ignore the older saints. Don't think that they're just old people who don't get you and, and um, have nothing to offer you. Don't ignore them just because they're old and you don't know how to talk to them. You can get to know them just as much as you would get to know one of your friends. Right? Can you ask them, hey, what are some of the things that you like to do in your free time? Absolutely. Right? That applies to everybody. Right? What are the things that you like to eat? What are the things that you like to watch on TV? You can apply all that to, to, to those things. Right? So strive to know and understand the older saints. Not only that, but strive to see how you can even meet their needs, too, if they have any, right? Or even just, hey, what are some things that you've learned in your life that you think might be helpful for me? You don't think that you've got it all figured out. That's arrogant. But strive to glean from the older saints what wisdom God might have given them in their time here on earth. If we start here, back at the basics of Christian life in the church, in loving one another, then we will surely have a powerful witness to our friends, family, and community as they see how the love of God manifests itself in all of our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for your word and for how it so strongly instructs us to love one another as Christ has loved us. We pray that, Lord, you would help us just to grow more and more in our love for you so that our love for others would be more natural, so that it would uh, demonstrate uh, the power of the gospel to bring people who are strangers together and unify them as one under Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to love others more so that in our witness, we might demonstrate the beauty of the gospel. We pray that you would make yourself known Uh, in our community around us as we go out. As your son and son, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for your attention. You are dismissed.